Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Hello, everybody. And as I said at the top of this show, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show today with my guest, Dr. Sharma Henderson. Welcome to the show, Sharma. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So Sharma is the she's a doc, she has a doctorate degree, and she uh, has a doctorate degree in education. And we're going to be talking about her incredible uh, background in education. And she is the co-founder and CEO, president of Community Outreach and Opportunity Programs. Tell, let, let me just be clear about this. This is just one of the many hats that she wears, and you're going to be hearing about all of those hats, or maybe just some of those hats. Maybe this will be, have to be a two-parter because Sharma is truly engaged in the community. So I thought, Sharma, we could start off by having you just tell our audience a little bit about yourself because it's pretty remarkable what you've done. Wow, thank you for that introduction, Marsha. I really appreciate it. So um, I uh, grew up in South Central Los Angeles, and uh, I was one of those kids that had uh, all of the the vices that you think about when you think of a a person from a low-income, at-risk, inner-city childhood. You know, um, both of my parents, unfortunately, suffered from um, drug addiction, and I... uh, lived with gang violence and um, all of those other kinds of things, worldly things in my community. And uh, what I saw for myself was that education would be my pathway out of the things that uh, tormented me growing up. And I kind of took that idea uh, really, really far. <laughs> so um I worked really hard in uh, junior high and high school to get the best grades that I could get, and I got involved in in several programs like the Upper Bound Program, which is a college prep federally funded program. Um, I'll shoot through my uh, educational, uh, uh, my academic degrees. So I have two bachelor degrees from USC, the University of Southern California. One is in psychology, and the other is in African American studies. And then I have a master's degree also from USC, which is in uh, education administration. And then from there, I went on to Pepperdine University and received my doctorate degree in education with an emphasis in organizational leadership. So uh, what I decided is that in order for me to have survived the things that I dealt with and lived through as my childhood, 
I had uh, to participate in these different programs, and I had these wonderful people in my life and in my world who served as mentors, as advisors and guides, and I uh, benefited from all of these different government programs and things like that. So I wanted to be that kind of person to young people growing up in my community in the same way that other people served in that role for myself. And so that's how I selected my career trajectory to work in education and to work in nonprofit and with government programs. Wow. Wow. That's, that truly is um, impressive. And it didn't come without a lot of hard work and, and tenacity and dedication. So congratulations on overcoming what maybe somebody else could never have done, and you did. And I loved what you Thank said you. when you said that education was your pathway out. I, I, you actually drew a picture in my mind. I actually saw you walking and with a backpack full of books saying, you know what, <laughs> this, this is the life I want, and I'm going to dedicate myself to that. So, con- it's 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 a it's a real it's a really wonderful story, Sharma. And we're going to be talking about. I, I guess let me let me start off by asking you this: Why is higher education such an integral part of your life and your life's work? Well, growing up in the community that I lived in, I really felt like I was. Stuck, And I saw a lot of people who were stuck in their situation and their circumstances in that environment. And I was just thirsty for a way out, desperate even for a way out. And the only thing that I saw that was almost fail-proof was getting educated. Because educated people seem to have had options. You know, they went away for school. They were able to choose a career and not just work a job. And because I had people around me who were helping me, the helpers in my life, and they all had these degrees that enabled them to be in those positions. And the the other part is that it was the only part of my life that I could control. Couldn't control where I lived. I couldn't control who I lived with. I couldn't control what I had. But I could control how well I did or didn't do in school. And putting those two concepts together, I decided that I was going to do everything that I could to do well in school so that I could have the opportunity to go to college and get a degree. And I was going to leverage that degree and that education to the best of my abilities to come back and help other people. Wow. Uh, You know, I have a lot of people that have been on my show over these six years but there's very few that could move me to tears based Aww. on what you've just described because my life was so different than yours. And much like you might not be able to imagine what my home life was like, living in Westchester with my mother and father and brother, I, I it's hard to imagine the fortitude that you had based on the circumstances that you were living in, and your teachers must have recognized in you that you had that potential as well as the grit and gusto to do all of this. But you had, 
you you had mentors as you mentioned all along and you and you went to all all LA, LA city schools is that right i believe that you did yes 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 i am Just, a product of the LA unified school district very proud of it yes where did you go to high school i went to LA high los angeles high school sure okay so um, I'm also a product of these schools. My children are also a product of these schools. And I just, I just congratulate you enough because it's one thing, and this is what we'll be speaking about, but it's one thing to excel and succeed and, and do all of this, but then it's like, now what? And that was when you talked about the leveraging. It was when you talk about now that it's been paid to me, I'm paying it forward to those young people that I don't just give lip service to, but I can relate in many ways on some of the struggles that they may be having. And I think that that makes you all the, all the more so um, authentic in standing in your own shoes. Um, it doesn't mean that all people have to have had your background to be successful. But what I guess I'm saying is because of your background, the fact that you overcame a lot of life struggles, that it's, it, it, it's, it's just it's remarkable. Um, wow, I am, yes. So I mentioned at the, t- at the top of the hour that you are the co-founder, CEO, president of Community Outreach and Opportunity Programs. And I would like, doesn't surprise me, I know that this is a nonprofit, and I thought we could spend some time talking about this organization. When did, you, when did this get started? So we started our agency uh, back in 2001, so we're actually coming up on 20 years this summer. And um, it started with uh, three young ladies, myself and uh, two of my very dear friends. And what we wanted to do was to create an organization to be a hub for the work that we already did in other places, but we just weren't satisfied in those other places. And so we wanted to have the latitude to do the programs with the heart and the soul that we had for them. So we, uh, our first programs that we ran were our, uh, we started with one and we ended up with two federally funded Upward Bound programs. And Upward Bound is the college prep program for uh, high needs youth. And uh, it provides supplemental instruction, summer academy, after school programs and services, depending on um, where you have that. The whole purpose is to help students get through high school and get into college. And one of the things that made our organization's Upward Bound programs unique is that we continued our service beyond getting them into college, but we always said we dragged them through college. (laughs) So we had supplemental funding to continue our services through their college experience so that we could heighten the likelihood of their success in staying in school and actually getting their degrees. Wow. So that's what we did for uh, 15 15 years. And uh, our overall uh, intention was to not only have services for those students, but to also have services for their families and their um, their siblings. Because we were, the three of us who started the organization were the only ones in our family that graduated college. And that's a lot of pressure and that's a hard position to be in. 
And so we wanted to try to address that with our students so that they wouldn't have so much pressure to carry the family along and be the support for their families, that they would be able to do that alongside their siblings and their cousins and other people in the family. And that way it wouldn't be where it was just them who achieved something. It would be a collective and hopefully have a broader impact on the family and the community in that way. So just so I understand, um, and I also want to distinguish that um, your program um, that you talked about, which is Upward Bound, is not the same as Outward Bound. They are two entirely different programs, in case people are wondering if they're one and the same. They are not the same. Right. So they're not, and I just wanted to make that very clear. So the three of you get started, and you want to assist students, I'm assuming male and female students, that you, yes. you meet them when they are at the high school level, or do you, get, do you get to know them even prior to high school? We will get to know them uh, as early as the eighth grade. Okay. Going into high school, but primarily we would take them out of the high school level. And how did how did they um, how did they come to even know about you? Is it did you work with the high school counselors at at local high schools? How did they how did these students even get connected to you? That's exactly what we did. We had staff that would go into the high schools and work mostly out of the college centers at the high schools or with the um, guidance counselors in the middle schools, and we would advertise and promote our programs that way and then also provide services to the students enrolled in our programs at the school site. We, you know, check their grades, meet with their teachers Mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. But we did recruitment at the school site, but we also heavily recruited the uh, siblings and family members of students who were enrolled in our program in line with the concept that we gave you earlier. So we had a lot of families that came through. So, um, you know, and generations of families actually that have come through the program. So that was nice to see as well. So give me, draw a picture for me. I, I, I like to kind of visualize what you're saying. So you're in a high school and you have um, a couple of siblings that are behind you in school. You're the oldest in the family. Mom and dad work. Um, You would really love to go to college. You don't know how you're going to possibly afford it. You don't even know how to go about even knowing what classes to take. I know at at the college office um, at the high school where I went and where my son went, um, it's funny that it was actually the trajectory of working in the college office when he was in high school, that actually took him to his career choice, where now he works at the Eller Business College at the University of Tucson doing something very similar. It's interesting how people in your life can affect how you move forward, much like what you described. So when you meet with this student, Susie, how is it that you get to know Everybody in her family are, I realize we're in a pandemic, but let's take the pandemic out prior to that. How did you actually come to know the whole family? So uh, I'll give you an an example with the uh, Poli family. So we um, 
serve as a family of uh, five children, and we started off with the eldest daughter who, when we went to the high school, we would pull the grades, and we tried to find students who were either um, doing academically well. We also looked at students who were kind of middle of the road, and we specialized with getting those students on track. Uh, Jacqueline Poli, who happened to be uh, more of a higher achieving student, we uh, called her out of her class, introduced her to our program, and she was one of the first to enroll in our uh, program. So she then participated in our after-school services, participated in our Saturday classes. She also participated in our summer program, which for um, we would take between 75 to 100 kids and have them for six weeks, Monday through Friday, in a college campus overnight, taking high school classes for credit. So just imagine <laughs> that experience. Wait, so you wait, say, I, how do we get to know our, our students oh who live with them for six weeks over the summer, and we have them with us every Saturday, and we have them with us after school until 7 p.m. And so as we bring in one student and we find out that they have a brother or sister uh, in in high school as well, we bring in those students. And so we brought in Jacqueline's siblings as a result of her being in the program. And as her siblings aged into high school, they aged into the program. And so we actually ultimately serviced all five of them. And um, they are they attended Westchester High School, but they lived in the city of Compton. And so, um, and they all had uh, permits to attend Westchester, so uh, which was one of our target schools. So she participated in our program, and as a result, that family of uh, students who were, you know, from a low-income family, and um, and and not all of them were as uh, academically uh, accomplished as Jacqueline started off to be. Um, they the she actually, I'm so proud, she received, ended up receiving her doctorate degree. Uh, she and her sister both were Bill Gates scholars and received uh, ample scholarship support from the Bill Gates Foundation. And um, so she received her doctorate degree. Her sister underneath her received a master's degree. Her uh, brother, who is actually older than her, received his bachelor's degree. There's another sister who received her bachelor's degree. And the youngest is attending school and working on his bachelor's degree. So um, that's the kind of impact that we are looking to have. And as you can imagine, we have a close connection to the family as a whole, and uh, she has amazing, wonderful parents. And that's the kind of impact that we have because now you have a family of siblings who are all, um, you know, college educated and, you know, one is on his way. And that kind of impact to that family, and now they're having children of their own. And so we don't have the same kinds of concerns for their children that their parents had to have for them. So that's a great example of the kind of impact that we'd like to have. And I was blessed to be able to sit on Jacqueline's committee for her doctorate, so that was an extra treat for me. I bet. I'm picturing what you've just said, and I'm, and I'm certain that I understood you correctly, but I want to repeat it to make certain. So that six-week summer program, those students were living on a college campus. They were not going home for that six weeks, correct? 
they would go home on the weekend. So they would go home Friday and then come back and meet us at the office on Monday morning. Got it. Okay. So they were having a college experience in many ways the same way college students were having. Were they like in a dorm kind of setting? Exactly. They'd live in the dorms, eat in the cafeteria. Their classrooms would be in the halls and classrooms on campus. Uh, they'd have extracurricular activities there. They had a full schedule, so from uh, breakfast at about 7 and mm-hmm. until we had lights out at 11 o'clock. They had roommate issues, cafeteria <laughs> food issues. Sure. You know, navigating their courses, keeping up. And um, we also had tutoring provided for them. And so uh, some programs offered college classes. We offered high school classes at the college environment. So I they see. would get class courses for credit. So, for example, they would take Algebra 1 and 2 or uh, English 9A and B. So they'd get a full year's worth of credit by being with our program. For some students, they were doing it to make up courses that they didn't do so well in. For Mm -hmm. other students, they were taking courses to advance them so that they could go even further in their coursework. So it just depended on the situation because we took students who, again, were uh, some underachieving, some right on track, and some who were excelling. We had a variety of students. What Was there a particular college that you did this with, or were there more than one college? We we were at several that depended on the budget and, and our uh, accessibility and satisfaction. So we had um, we've been at uh, Woodbury University. We were at Cal Baptist. We were at Cal Poly Pomona, um, at Chapman University mm-hmm. in Orange. Uh, we did one year where we did uh, we kind of college hopped for a year. So that was fun where we did a week at Dominguez, a week at LMU you know, a week at Cal Poly, and, you know, they got to experience each of the different campuses. So we switched it up from year to year. Wow. And they were young, so it's summertime. Normally what you would see typically, but not always, because there are summer programs that I I live two blocks from LMU, um, so I know that there are summer programs there. So you've got kids that are typically much younger than your typical college student and they're really not only interacting I'm presuming with those students that are of their age which is the high school age but they're also coming in contact I would assume not in their classes but with with uh, college age students that are also in that cafeteria is that right yes and no the way that we would have it set up is we were typically having our lunches at certain times and there would be a lot of overlap but most of the times at those college and universities more so than anything else you see a lot of other summer programs so a lot of like uh, soccer camps and you know other academic programs Mm -hmm. a lot of the athletic groups and things like that so Mm -hmm. you would always have some element of presence from the college student more so at certain campuses than the others but we um, we kept a tight ship and a tight bubble, so there was some interaction um, just naturally traversing the campus, mm-hmm. but not a lot of overlap in, in spaces, just for safety and things like that. I see. 
Well, it's, it's exciting what you're doing, and I, I can't imagine what this must feel like for you to, to just talk about this one woman that you discussed that you knew her when she was in high school, and now she has a doctorate degree, and her sister has a master's, and a brother has a bachelor's, and another brother's going on to college. It's just I, the um, internal, what does that feel like to you? It's a it's a blessing. It's you know, one of the joys that we get from the work that we've done is that we get to see our legacy in action. You know, we get to see the impact that we've had on these students and and see their lives change and changing before our eyes. You know, um I, I have to mention uh Deshaun Fuller who is my closest friend and also co-founder of Co-op. And really, um, you know, the heart and soul of the work that we did with uh, the students, she's definitely um, responsible for a lot of that. And, you know, the work that we did with these kids and to, to see the opportunities that they've had and that they've been able to make for themselves and others, it's just, it's it's just a, it's a blessing, you know. It's it a is. blessing to know that my life mattered and that our work had such an impact and continues to have an impact. Because you know, one of the wonderful things about social media is that we don't have to guess about what's going on with our different students that we serve. We get to see mm-hmm. everything in action. And for me, just to see them live their lives and talk about their jobs and go on vacations with their families. And, you know, I must mention that, you know, for both Deshaun and I, our work didn't begin with co-op. It was um, our work kind of evolved into co-op, but we also had students that we worked with prior to that with other organizations that we were working with and that we graduated out of. So we carried those students into our work with co-op. And so a lot of the people who serve as our staff, were our former students from these other programs and organizations. And so we mentored them throughout their college careers and then saw some of them, you know, get their, uh, you know, degrees and doctorate degrees and master's degrees. And so um, it's just a wonderful experience. For sure. Absolutely. What are your plans? Um, I know COVID has certainly affected all of us in numerous ways, but what are your plans moving forward with co-op for the for your future? Well, um, you know, we'll get into talking about some of the things that took place uh, in terms of my own health challenges that impacted the work that we do. But okay. We do continue to provide, provide services, but what we're looking at is expanding and providing um, upper bound services and other similar services um, here in the South Bay area, particularly in, in Carson and beyond. So, um, you know, college prep will always be the heart and soul of what we do with co-op. And so we're um, looking at having, you know, those services in this particular community. Great. So, uh, you know, there's a lot we can talk about. I mentioned at the top of the hour that, you know, you are – one active woman and we're going to talk about your health concerns because that absolutely is a pivotal part about what is going on in your life but I wanted to ask you before we get to that particular question you you've also been involved in the stroke center in Carson as well haven't you yes 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 My and that's been quite some time hasn't it 
Yeah, yeah. I uh, actually got involved in Stroke Center back in uh, 2009. Mm-hmm. And um, the it, it started, so I mentioned that I was in Upper Bound. And my first love, whose name was Curtis Story, was also an Upper Bound student. And he and I met when we were in Upper Bound. And uh, coincidentally, my friend Deshaun and I also met in Upper Bound. So that's how important this program is, yes. you know, in the lives of the students who go through it. And so Curtis and I, um, during that time, we had, uh, I mentioned he was my first love. And uh, we had been a couple for many years. And in 2007, he experienced pulmonary embolisms which was the blood clot in the lung, and he also had them in the heart. And then in 2008, he suffered a major, major stroke. And so I found myself, um, you know, at the age of 31, you know, a caregiver for, you know, my partner. And um, he went through treatment and rehabilitation, but he never fully recovered from that stroke. And once he finished his uh, rehab, I was desperate for, something to do to provide him with continued services. And I just happened to see in a rec guide that Carson, oddly enough, had this program called Stroke Center um, in the city of Carson. And so I checked it out, and it turns out that unlike we have the only recreational, social, and therapeutic services, lifelong services that are provided for free to stroke survivors and their caregivers in the city of Carson. There's no other program that currently exists like it. And so uh, we were blessed enough to be living here in Carson at the time and to stumble upon that program. Mm -hmm. And so um, I went over there, and for a period of about six months, I attended daily with Curtis, and I worked, you know, did my work for co-op at the Stroke Center, you know, remotely. Mm -hmm. And um, at that point, he started to attend daily on his own, and I returned to the office, and that's the, with our love, I say that's where my love affair with Carson began. It's through the Stroke Center. Wow. They provide uh, daily activities for stroke survivors and their caregivers, recreation, um, uh, speech therapy, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, all kinds of recreation and social activities. It really is a hmm. a family program for people who have uh, suffered strokes and the people who love and take care of them. Wow, fantastic. Um, okay, well, I, you know, sometimes I, I say that my guests are like master jugglers. Um, in your case, I just see you just taking off one hat and putting on another. So then uh, you ended up running for a position in city council in, in Carson, right, in 2018 because you didn't have enough going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so what happened is that, you know, um, so I took care of Curtis for about 10 years, and uh, in 2017, unfortunately, he passed away from heart failure, which was a dating loss for myself personally, and um, also devastating for the members of the, the Stroke Center and uh, for people in the city of Carson, because he really got involved. We both were really involved with the city by then. Um, our volunteer work with the Stroke Center just expanded and expanded. And what happened is that uh, also right around the time that he had uh, was dying, 
they implemented some fees for non-residents. And so we started this crusade to get those fees reduced because they were really unfair. There wasn't a financial burden to the city from having these stroke survivors participating. It didn't really impact the budget. I mean, the impact was negligible. And we went from one day having a full and thriving program to then having people not be able to attend. And some of them had been attending for decades. It was just, it was just really an unfortunate situation. And I made a promise to Curtis that I would continue to fight that fight against those fees no matter what happened to him. And I, I didn't think that he was going to pass away. And, again, he did. And so for um, so during that time, I was going to the council meetings every other week and advocating, every other week fighting, every other week speaking during oral communications, whether it was on the agenda or not, and begging and pleading the city council to please eliminate these fees so that our stroke center family could be whole again, come back and receive these vital services. What I didn't realize is that people were – paying attention to what I was saying and paying attention to my heart. And so I was actually approached by a group of community members who encouraged me and asked me to consider running for city council. And so uh, I gave it a lot of thought. You know, I was going through a lot, you know, uh, physically. I was going through a lot medically. I was going through a lot in terms of my grief. And because of the timing of Curtis passing along with, these fees. It was a very emotional battle for me. Yes. And so, um, but I gave it some thought and I decided that I could be a better advocate, a better volunteer, a better public servant for the people in my city if I were on the city council. And so, you know, that's what I did. I, I jumped in and mm-hmm. started running for city council. It was a crazy <laughs> ride, but I did it. <laughs> wow. Gosh, what's involved in doing something like that i can't imagine i don't know how you are the master juggler i'm just saying you might have this hat on now but holy cow it's not like this was the only thing you were doing wow well the the the, it's funny that you say that because I, i as you can imagine i'm a pretty like pragmatic person so i i think things out and i prepare and i research and this was something I did, unlike, I mean, I'm not even to call me up today and say, hey, let's have dinner tonight. You know that that's a long shot because even that, for me, if I didn't plan for it, I'm typically not up for doing it. This was something <laughs> I completely, I completely did not plan for. Um, but I got to a point where I thought, how often do people get an opportunity where someone comes to them and say that we think so much of the work that you do that you would be an even better elected official or public servant. So I made the odd decision of doing something that I had no idea about. I mean, I had, at that point, I had only done two uh, political contributions <laughs> in my <laughs> lifetime. Oh, my I, I, and, you'll, and you'll get a chuckle out of this. One of them was for Obama, and the other one was for Edgar Sands, who's a member of the Westchester community, because mm-hmm. when co-op started, he was the only person from the um, government officials' offices that actually came to see what we were about. And he religiously came to our programs and services and supported our agency. So when he did run, I I think it was for assembly or something, I made a contribution. He was my first political contribution. So (laughs) anyhow, I had no idea what I was doing. 
And it's a lot of work. It's all day. You give up your whole life to do this thing called running for office. You're knocking on doors. You're sending out mailers. You're going to all of these different public forums. You're talking to people on the phone. You're sending out text messages. You're, you know, recording blurbs and you're, you know, converting everything that you do on social media towards your campaign. It was an enormous amount of responsibility. And in the midst of it, I thought I was nuts for taking it on. Yes. I had no idea what it was like, you know, and, and having to, you know, uh, fundraise for money and, you know, you, you almost feel like you're being put on a show. You're going to all of these events so that you can get introduced and you're, you're constantly getting your spiel about yourself. And it was just, um, it was a lot of work, but I am very happy that I decided to do it. Um, I did not win that election, but I did very well for someone who was a newcomer. There I was you go. Insistent on, yeah, I, and I was insistent on doing it on my terms. So what gave me pride is that I ran a clean campaign. I ran an ethical campaign. I did not participate in any negativity or any attacks. I was true to who I was as a person, and every vote I had, I earned. And so that gives me a lot of pride. I bet it does. Would you do this again? Would you consider running again? Yeah, not only would I consider it, I actually am preparing to run again. Wow. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things, once you get get into it, you know, you feel compelled to at least try again. And, uh, of course, I had folks, you know, expecting me to, to give it another try. And um, one of the seats that was actually up for um, election in 2018 has opened up because a council member uh, ended up running for mayor. So she's now serving as mayor, which mm. means a vacated seat available. So we're having a special election in November of uh, this year. And so I am, uh, again, next deep time around. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I know, you, I know yeah. what I'm in for. Right, you're bringing some experience. Right, right. I'm excited about the this time around we're in districts, which is something very, very new to Carson. And so I'm running for my district. I live in District 4, which is the southern side of the city. And I'm excited about our city being able to finally get some attention that it's been needing for so long and to have uh, a targeted focus on my service. You know, although – it would be a position that would still serve the city as a whole just by mm-hmm. the sake of being a council member. But to be able to bring targeted resources to my side of town would be an amazing thing. So I'm really excited about that. I guess so. Well, I've been alluding and you've been alluding to the fact that we're going to take all of those hats off now for a moment because not only have you been so committed to all of the things that you're doing, but it hasn't been an easy process because you have really struggled with some health issues, including endometriosis and chronic illness. And I thought we could spend a little bit of time, you know, just letting people know that part of Sharma that maybe there are people listening right now, maybe they knew this, maybe they didn't know this, but it is a it is a part of you. So do you want to tell us a little bit about this? 
Absolutely, and thank you for asking. I um, Back in 2013, I ended up, uh, after a few months of being in, in pain and in inexplicable pain, I ended up in the hospital with a 100% complete bowel blockage and a collapsed right lung. No reason as to why or how that happened. Um, I, I, I spent 21 days in critical care, in the critical care unit, and after a procedure to clear my lung out and a surgical procedure to clear the bowel blockage, they discovered that I had an abnormally uh, extreme case of endometriosis, which, uh, long story short, is where tissue that is akin to the tissue that lines the uterus during the uh, menstrual cycle is somehow makes its way outside of the uterus and implants itself on other parts of the reproductive system. And 10% of the women in the world suffer from that condition. And 10% of those women, which is 1% of the women in the world, have it where it goes to other organs outside of the reproductive system. And so uh, overachiever as I might be, (laughs) you know, my cells are all over the place. And basically what happens is that that tissue builds up during the month like it would if it were inside the uterus, except in the uterus when you have your menstrual cycle, it releases and it comes out. But when it's in other places, there's no way for it to go. So it becomes scar tissue and it, it begins to penetrate those areas where it is outside of the uterus and outside of the reproductive system. So in my case, my condition over a period of years, which likely started when I began my menstrual cycle as a teenager and went undiagnosed such a long and really inexplicable period of time that it was not diagnosed. My surgeons were all in tears when they opened up my abdominal cavity and saw the damage that was there. Um, It's caused my organs, my intestines in particular, to fuse together, so they're permanently stuck together. My um, uh, bladder is damaged. Um, Most of my abdominal organs are also damaged, and I have um, these permanent adhesions and lesions that are uh, in my entire abdominal cavity that causes me extreme pain with with eating any kind of consumption, any kind of excretion, um, I'm having pain. So you imagine you use the restroom and you eat all day long, and so I, as a result, am in pain pretty much all day long. Wow. 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 You know, I don't think most people knew this. So what you're saying is that typically 90% of the time, endometriosis stays within the uterus 10 percent of the time it leaves and you fell into that 10 percent yes okay wow that's um thank you for sharing that i think that that's very personal but i think it just goes I, i i'm sure as people are listening they're going wait wait Wait, so when, when did when did that start? That was back in 2013, and yet you've been doing mm-hmm. all of these other things. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable, but it did have an effect on what you were doing professionally, did it not? 
Oh, it's had a huge effect. I want to make one one note that you know, all my life I had very, very painful periods, and it was always minimized. I mean, I was told to take ibuprofen, take Advil. Um, one of the things that I want for parents in particular to know that if your daughter's having a painful period, that's not normal. Discomfort is normal. Pain is not normal. And so you should always be looking to um, find out where that pain is coming from. I'm actually putting together a task force um, of, of professionals uh, to put together a curriculum for the California State Department of Education on women's reproductive health and disorders. And we are looking to develop curriculum for elementary, middle school, and high school grade levels to be introduced so that women and young girls can learn about their bodies and know more about what's going on before it happens instead of learning tragically after the damage is done. So I did want to just make sure that I mentioned that because, you know, had anyone in my life known that my pain was abnormal for a reason, then I might have been able to preserve my health, preserve my fertility, and to save myself from this major impact that it had on my life. I've had several surgeries, and as a result of the debilitation that comes from the condition and those surgeries, I wasn't able to function for a few years, actually. I um, We ended up having to close our upper bound programs as a result of that. We um, closed our facility doors. It's taken me away from a lot of the activities that I love and that I uh, adore, um, one of them being rotary. I've been clinching on to my rotary membership, like, hmm. for dear life mm-hmm. <laughs> over the past I know. few years. And, oh, you know, I we miss you. I know. I come in and out and in and out because the rotary means so much to me. And um, and so it's, been, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to be in pain all the time and to try to live my life and function. So as glorious as all of these things sound, you know, it's a struggle. And I have to push to be able to function and to make things happen. You know, I have to do things in a way where I – you know, when I, one thing that I learned when I went, ran for office in 2018 is that, you know, I couldn't do all of those lunch meetings. So I would schedule a lunch meeting, but I wouldn't necessarily eat because eating causes pain. And right. so I had to figure out how do I serve, how do I function, you know, and not trigger my pain. Mm-hmm. So as much as I try to remain involved, and active in my community and to do the work that I do with co-op and the other organizations that I'm with, um, it, it, it's hard. You know, mm-hmm. um, another group that I am coordinating council, and I serve as their interim executive director. And the coordinating council has been serving the city of Carson for uh, 68 years, uh, and it was under the leadership of Carol King, who's a beloved member of the uh, city of Carson. And so uh, with the organization, I have been doing some revitalization work, and we are looking at launching some wonderful new programs in the city of Carson. And so that's another thing that I balance, you know, um, given Mm -hmm. my health challenges. So we have a wonderful board of directors, very supportive, um, and definitely a very compassionate group of folks who Mm -hmm. work with me. And, you know, I am blessed to have people in my life 
who, who understand what I'm experiencing and who, you know, they're able to cut me some slack at times or pick up the slack at times and who understand that um, this is my push, right? You know, people ask me, oh, well, you know, what do you do to, you know, have self-care? What do you do to relax? And it's like, you know, forget relaxing and self-care. <laughs> you know, I don't have a choice but to take care of myself. My joy is being functional and doing the things that I need to do for the community and doing my work. So right. when I do that, that's where I feel joy. That's where I feel like I'm taking care of that part of my need to, to be active and to serve the community. Wow, wow, and wow. Like I said, this could be a two-hour show. My gosh, I, I, am so, I am so grateful and appreciative that you are being so open and sharing what you've been dealing with because you don't know who's listening. Maybe it's grandma. Maybe it's mom. Maybe it's dad. You know, you, your daughter has cramps. Okay, cramps are not an uncommon thing, having a period. Um, But debilitating, painful, this is out of the ordinary, I can't function cramps, is something you should be having a conversation with your doctor about. And And if families know this ahead of time, you know, this is a service that, that you've just provided that somebody may not have known about otherwise. So I'm grateful that you are so willing, you know, to share that. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty remarkable. And I, I believe you have a very strong spiritual foundation as well, though. Is that right, Sharma? Oh, yes, absolutely. My faith is you know, my platform for getting through through life, you know, without being able to have a belief in a, a higher authority or something more powerful than me, um, I don't know how I would survive the things that I've, I've experienced. You know, I'm active in my church. I love my church community. And I'm also a person who likes to devour other religions. You know, mm-hmm. I believe in the power of God and that God represents himself or herself to people in different forms. And so I have a lot of respect for all religions and all forms of faith. And that's what keeps me, me going, that, that, that hope for tomorrow, that hope for something better, that there's something bigger than what we see in front of us. That's what gets me, me, me through the pain, through the sadness, through the the depression through mm-hmm. the struggle you know through the pain flares that my faith keeps me going i bet it does i i bet it does and uh i i i know that you as you as you mentioned you're single you you don't have children do you have sort of that go-to support team that you draw from you know i have amazing friends mm-hmm. yeah I, I i often you know you see a lot of cynical stuff on social media about keeping your circle small and yeah. you know you only get so many good friends in your life and i don't ascribe to any of that. me either i, I have I, I right i just i, I don't, don't. I, I just, mm-hmm. the people who say that stuff i'm thinking gosh they they must have very lonely lives or maybe they make poor choices in the people around them, right? Because 
I have amazing people in my life. And, I mean, I I think, you know, I mentioned Rotary. I, I think of the people that I've met in, in, in Rotary, and there are people who are members of our club who they knew me, you know, before I had my most recent surgery, and they knew the me that I'm accustomed to being. And during that time, we formed, like, serious bonds. And I will tell you that even now, in my almost year absence from the club, I have people who come through for me in in the most wonderful of ways. You know, I would not have a roof over my head. I wouldn't, you know, be able to do the work that I do. I wouldn't be able to survive any of this without the relationship that I have, the friendship that I have, the people who call and check on me, the people who, you know, drag me out and say, hey, you know, particularly before COVID and now during COVID, you know, I have some friends, we get on Zoom regularly just so that we could see each other's faces, you know, that text message that says, hey, are you okay? And, you know, folks that will come and drop off food. At one point during this pandemic, I had more food than I could eat and sit (laughs) in my refrigerator. It was ridiculous, you know. So just my relationships with people are so valuable and important to me, and that carries me through. That that gets me because I'm here by myself, you know, and, and it's been especially difficult with the pandemic. You yeah. know, um, for other people, it's, you know, they love their quiet time, their downtime, yeah. their alone time. But when you're alone, when you're dealing with chronic illness and pain, when you deal with – I've suffered from depression for over – 20 some odd years and you can imagine how mm-hmm. exacerbated that became once I became chronically ill and then the pandemic hit it's like whoa right. you know um so so my relationships you know and I have some angels who have come through for me big time and some who have you know continued to come from through for me and, and you know my sisters have been very supportive and loving and caring so Wonderful. I'm blessed to have a great Wonderful. community of people that's so great. Oh, geez. So let's think about this for a second. I was going to ask you something about maybe what you have some regrets about, but I don't want to take you down that hole. I would rather mm-hmm. not focus on what you regret because clearly you are very accomplished, and we probably all have some kind of regret based on a lot of different things that we've done in our lives. But as sure. people are listening to this, and you are providing such uh, such inspiration, I suppose, would be a, a one word that comes to my mind. What would you want people to know about you? What, it, when, when we hang up this call, what do you want people to think about this conversation that you and I have had? That's an That's excellent question. Tough. I think what I want people to, to know is that about my resilience, you know, my ability, it's not so much that you don't, you know, go through things. It's how you respond to the things that you go through. And, you know, I I, I don't feel like I've gotten a fair deal. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, I, I used to have this idea when I was a kid that, you know, the things that I went through as a kid, that I was going through all of that then so that as an adult I would have this amazing life that was free from all kinds of pain because I was paying my dues back then. Well, clearly, 
you know, that ended up not being, you know, so true. But one of the things that I truly, truly believe, and that's the reason why I'm so open about the things that I experience, is that the lessons that I learn, they're not just for me. The learn aren't just for them. But if we share and if we talk about these things and if we're open and we're honest and we're authentic and we're real, that we could save ourselves a lot of trouble and a lot of heartache, you know. Um, so I believe in sharing my story, sharing my truth, being open about who I am. Because if you really, really know who I am and you know about the things that I've experienced and that I've gone through, that's how we have relationship. That's how we build community. That's how we have connection. You know, keeping things secret, that's toxic. You know, feeling shame and embarrassment, that's toxic. It doesn't serve you. It doesn't serve your family. It doesn't serve community. So my main thing is to tell your truth, to tell your story, and to be open about what you're going through as you're going through it and also after you've gone through it so that you could better have better relationships and that you can better serve community and better serve society. So that's what I want people to know about me is my truth, the truth about who I am, so that as we interact and we engage, we can come from a place of true knowing and true friendship. That's what's important to me. I don't have many guests that leave me emotional. I must tell you, and, um, you know, I I think that's because, as you so eloquently said, you are speaking your truth. We actually share not so much the physical, physicality, I obviously don't, I I shouldn't say obviously, I'm going to take that language out. I personally do not. Um, suffer from chronic illness, and I'm grateful. It's the first thing I, I think about when I wake up in the morning is my health and how grateful I am for my health. But I think where I feel so bonded and connected to you is your truth. You're not just saying what you think you want me to hear. You're not trying to fit into a box because, frankly, I think that's difficult. Mm-hmm. I think, for me personally, it's easier to be authentic. It's mm-hmm. Maybe it isn't what everybody wants to hear. And so, all right, born to talk, I understand that. There are times when you want to somebody's hand is up. It's like, oh, God, I just came in the market to buy carrots. I didn't intend to stand here for a half an hour with you, Marcia. But, you know, when when you are a social person, as I am, and then you feel mm-hmm. somewhat isolated, you know, even though you are doing all the things you're doing and you're, you're, you're going to run again for a, for a position on the city council, that takes stamina, that takes a team. You sounds like you've surrounded yourself with marvelous people that want to see you succeed. So, you know, I, I just see so many open doors for you rather than closed doors for you. And I not only see the doors open for you, Sharma, but what you are is you are a door opener. You open the doors for others because you understand and you you just you get it 
And by able, by being as authentic as you've just described and by being as truthful, you know, you're not asking for, you're not on a pity party. You're not saying, oh, please, please wave this pity flag in front of me. That is not what you're asking. You're, you're not asking, telling no, not your story. And you don't know what that other person's story is, Sharma. You don't know that as you're talking to this person that they're saying to you, you mentioned that you've dealt with depression. Well, XYZ is talking to you and they're saying, I understand. Me too. How have you dealt with this? Can we talk about that? You can you can bring your truth forward and talk about those things as much as you want to 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 help. And it must it must be a comforting feeling as much as you struggle with your Everyday chronic illness, we all have to eat. We all have to go to the bathroom, you know, and if this is something that you deal with that we just don't consider when we're having a sandwich or, you know, having a piece of fruit, that you, when you do this, is discomfort. And I'm just, I'm amazed at your fortitude and your resilience because I would absolutely agree with you. You are one resilient woman. And I am just so grateful that, that you've gotten, we've gotten to know each other in a way that we didn't know each other before because I haven't seen you at the Rotary meetings. And clearly, you know, we haven't been meeting in person anyway. But I would certainly encourage you to come to our Zoom meetings when you can so that everybody can say hi and and be happy to see you because that would be really great. And I, I would love to see you do that as well. So I yes. just I just want to thank you for your time, for what you're what you're doing for the community of Carson. They're fortunate to have you there and for what you're doing um in the world of education. It's it's impressive. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a great discussion. It has. So, everybody, um, as you can tell, we've we've come to the end of this hour. Um, I I I want to thank Sharma once again for listening, and I really hope if you've listened through this entire show, that you will feel the importance of sharing it. We talked about social media. Share it where you have your friends, and let other people know about the remarkable work that Sharma is doing professionally and how she's coping with this physically. So I will say goodbye for now, and um, I look forward to seeing you at a Zoom meeting. It's 7.30s. We get together. Meeting starts at 8, and it would be lovely to see you there, Sharma. So I hope that that happens in the near future. All the best to you. I will be on. Thank you. Take okay. care. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Time. Bye for now, everybody.